Well, praise God. It is so good to come together, isn't it? Uh, we had a wonderful uh, time on Friday night uh, celebrating God's good love. Uh, we had our Valentine's party. We played some wonderful games. Uh, I still have a kink in my neck, and if you will wonder why, you're going to have to ask those who happen to begin there. Uh, but so, so, so good, and so, so, so excited again to uh, uh, bring this sermon this morning from God's Word. And it's incredible because last time we were together, uh, we looked at uh, verses 37 and 38 of the sermon that is preached by, by uh, Stephen, and it says this, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with his fathers he received living oracles to give to us. And we realize, again, the whole context, don't we? Stephen is, un, uh, un, uh, uh, is up on charges against blasphemy, against the law of God, speaking against the law of God. And we realize the repercussions of this are absolutely serious. But what he tells, again, is everything that he's been teaching has aligned with the law of God. In fact, in the law of God, in those books that Moses had given, he talked about, again, a prophet that would come like Moses, that would do these signs, do these wonders, and he would be the great deliverer of Israel. Just as uh, Moses delivered the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, he would deliver them out of bondage. But the people of Israel misunderstood. They were the ones who misunderstood the law. They revered Moses. And they looked at law as a way of righteousness. But what it was was to show them their utter sinfulness, their utter need for another deliverer. And that deliverer happened to be, again, Moses. And it's amazing because he goes on and calls this law living oracles. And that's such a key phrase when you look at it because living oracles are speaking of something that is alive, isn't it? It's able to give life. It is not dead. And when he says living oracles, again, there is a realization that this is none other than the word of God, right? It's all truth, all of it, nothing but truth. And it's amazing how many times we say, yes, yes, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. In fact, if you took, um, I don't know, if you took a hundred different congregations of various different Christians from various different backgrounds and you put them all in an auditorium and you asked them, how many of you believe that the word of God, all of it is the word of God? All of it's been God-breathed. All of it's been inspired. You would probably get probably around 95 to 99% of the people that would hold up their hands. If you asked them this question, is it everything, is what is in the word of God, everything that you need to live the Christian life, everything that you need for life and godliness, you know, far fewer would put up, put up their hands. And the reason why is we think we need something else. You know, and I wonder if you sit here this morning, what is your conviction about the word of God? Is it everything that you need for life and godliness? Is it truly your guide through this wilderness of this life? You know, does it really, again, bring us to, to Christ and answer the big problems that happen at the beginning of life? Because as we come to verse number 39 this morning, it's really a turning point in this sermon. You know, so far he's been given information, information, laying the groundwork, again, as far as their guilt. And he's been given this information. But when you look at every true sermon, every true sermon is giving information, isn't it? It's teaching people. Again, it's trying to illuminate the mind with this knowledge. It's giving a knowledge. But every true sermon goes further. It takes the truth that is being taught and applies it to life. Without that application, then it's just a lecture, isn't it? It's just teaching. What sets biblical preaching apart is that it applies it to life of the individual's. 
And basically, Paul's or uh, Stephen's great application is this: you're making the same error. You're going down the same path as rebe- of rebellion as your forefathers. And verse number thirty-nine is one of those soul-searching verses, because I think again, as you look at all of life, all of us are trying to explain life, aren't we? We're trying to answer the question: Why is the world the way it is? Why are people the way they are? Why am I the way I am? Why did that person say those hateful, those hurtful words to me? Why, why did that person walk away uh, from salvation in Jesus Christ? Why did they walk away from Christ? Why did that person who happened to be, again, a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a committed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, commit such a horrendous sin in their life? You know, when we try to answer these questions, and because we're inquisitive people, we want to come up with an answer. And the most common answer is to look outside of ourselves, isn't it? The reason why they walked away from, from, from Christ as a church wasn't loving enough. The reason why that person that committed Christian went off into horrendous sin is because, again, he had these obstacles that happened to begin in his life. I mean, don't, don't, don't we do the same thing? You know, we'll say something like that. She knows how to push my buttons. The reason why I fell into that gross sin is I was in a vulnerable place, or whatever it happens to be, but the problem is the vulnerable place. The problem is somebody knows how to push my buttons. In other words, the greatest danger I have is outside of myself. And what we are actually saying, and I want us to get this, is is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what God gives us in the word of God, is not enough. I need something to change that happens to be again outside of me. And again, I come back to the question, what is your conviction as far as the word of God? And you know how you can answer that question? By answering this question, what do you think you need most out of life? What do you need to think that you need most, that you can live for God and live a contented life with Jesus Christ? Maybe it's a certain relationship. Maybe it's a new spouse. Maybe it's obedient children. Maybe it's, again, a different job or more money. Maybe it's even a new or a better pastor. You know, but what are we convinced of? Because when we come to, to, to Israel and we see this, this picture of who Israel is, remember what's happening. They have come through Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They saw all of these ten plagues that happened to be there. They saw the dividing of the Red Sea. They walked through on that dry ground. They seen the, the most powerful army that existed during that time absolutely pulverized. But now we've come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And we see the gross sin in Israel. And we ask this question, what was the problem? What did they need? Did they really need more revelation? Did they really need something else? And here's the question again, what is the problem? Because I think the problem is far deeper and far more significant in our lives than we tend many times the explanations that we give. And you know the importance of that? The importance of that, if we do not diagnose the problem properly, then we're going after the wrong cure. Then we're going after the wrong answer. You know, and according to the word of God, the answer lies in the human heart, and the answer lies in our love, our friend of fidelity, our following of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he provides. And so as we look at the rebellion of Israel this morning, I really want us to see it's, it's, it's really a diagnostic tool for us. You know, that we might not follow into sin, that we might see the glorious reality of our great God and truly follow him. 
So I want us to see, first of all, as we look at this passage, and we look at verse number 39, I want us to see the problem. Because the Word of God gives us that problem. Because look at what he says right here in verse number 39. He says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turn to Egypt. Now, let me just stop right there. Because you have to realize the context, right? They've come out of Egypt. They come through the Red Sea. They come into the wilderness. And now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the law is ready to be given to Israel. And you have this scene that takes place in Exodus chapter 20. Let me just read a few verses from there. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now think of this, because the terror and the fear of this passage right here is different from the fear when, when, when Israel passed through the Red Sea and here on the other side when the collapse of the Red Sea, uh, the, the decimation of the army of Egypt, and they praise the Lord and they have this fear, this worship fear of God. That fear is different here. This fear, again, is an utter terror. This is not a worship fear, but a terror fear. You know, one brings us closer to God. We delight in God. We see his awesomeness. We see his glory. We see his grace. We see his justice. And we're drawn towards that love. That, 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 that love. But this is a terror fear. We don't want anything to do with this God. They see, again, the smoke. And you can imagine the, the, this scene. The smoke is coming up. There's flashes of lightning. There's thunder. There's even a trumpet coming. You know, and it gives a message right here that God is not safe. We don't want anything to do with this God. You speak to us, and we will do the things that you want us to do, or God wants us to do. Uh, But don't let God speak to us. Don't let God draw near. And so what comes after that is Moses goes up on the mountain. You know, he disappears through 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 that thick cloud of of, uh, smoke, of darkness that happened to begin right there. And what you have after that is chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of laws and regulations. And when you look at all those laws and regulations, they're given for a specific reason, right? He's establishing the nation. He's establishing this direct rule, how the people are ruled under God, right? It's a theocracy, you know, that is being established. And then after more than 10 chapters, we read this. And this is in Exodus chapter 32. This is the way it begins. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come before him. Now, let me me just say this. This is stranger than fiction. It really is. It really is stranger than fiction. What happened? How did we get from here? This worship fear of God when they saw the armies of Egypt absolutely decimated to this rank idolatry that happens to be over there. How did we get from here to there? Now think about it. If you asked Israel, what is the problem? What would they say? It's easy to see the problem. You didn't come down from the mountain. 
right? There happens to be this light. We don't know what happened to you. Things would have been so different if you had come down a day or two earlier. But you didn't come down. And isn't that like our humanity, right? We're always looking to blame others for, for our foibles, for the sins that haven't begun in our life. And let me just say this. This is the oldest excuse in the, in the, in, in the book, isn't it? Right, right, Adam, Adam? Well, it was a woman he gave me. It's the oldest excuse in the book. And think of it, any time we look for an excuse outside of ourselves, who, who, who are we really blaming? You know, you delayed. Well, who delayed Moses on the mountain? It happened to be, begins with a big G, by the way. It's who? It's God. You know, who brings these difficult and tough relationships that happen to be in our life, these tough situations that we happen to be in? It happens to be God. But here's the thing that we don't want to believe. We just do not want to believe that we are truly that bad, that sinful, that awful. We're just not like that. You know, it's the other people that happen to begin in our life. And this is why I love the Word of God. Because the Word of God always acts like a diagnostic tool. When I'm left to myself, I'm always going to come up with other answers of why I do what I do. But the Word of God will not let, let, let me get away with it. And you can see this in verse number 39 of our passage. You know, it's said, said by Stephen. It's written down by Luke by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. But listen to what it says, because it acts like a diagnostic tool. This is what's going on. Our fathers refused to obey him, obey Moses, but thrust him, Moses, aside. In other words, thrusting God aside. Why? And in their heart, they turned to Egypt. And you can see that, right? You can see actions. Actions, you can see that thrusting aside, and it's metaphorical because Moses is up, uh, up on the uh, mountain, but it's totally discarding him. Totally, we will obey, right, right, totally discarding him, wanting nothing to do. And why? And here's what it says because they turned. Do you get that? They turned, their hearts, they turned to Egypt, right? That's why. Think of it because the heart, what is the heart? And the heart is basically the totality of who you truly are. It's not talking about your external. It's talking about the internal. It's not talking about just the emotions, but everything that's inside of you. It's the mind. It's the will. It's the emotions. It's our feelings. It's our desires that happen to be in there. All of them, again, working inside of us so much so that what we truly long for, what we truly desire in life comes out, right? And, and get this, it's more than knowledge. They had great knowledge of God. They seen this great God work in their, in their lives, bring this mighty deliverance out of Egypt. It's more than just knowledge. But what it is, again, is the totality. I, I mean, I can have right knowledge, right? But I can still do the wrong thing. I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wants me not to covet to be content with the things that I have, but I still covet other people's things. I, I know the word of God has told me not to murder other people in my heart and with my language, but I can still get frustrated. I can still choose to this. It's, it's, it's more than knowledge, isn't it? You know, it's the totality of desire and want and all of these things along with how we interpret things that happen to be in life. Right? Think about it. Think about this. Why does somebody reject Jesus Christ? What if somebody reject the gospel, right? And, and we, we try to come up with explanations as far as their background, as far as their upbringing, as far, as far as how they live. Again, we try to come up with some other 
explanation. But why doesn't someone, if the, if the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is explained to them, and they agree, right, that there is a God, they agree because it's really easy to see that they're sinners, they're under judgment. They agree that they need a redeemer. Excuse me, just one for one sec. They agree beyond a shadow of a doubt that they need a redeemer, right? And the answer is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if they agree with everything that is said, why do they reject Jesus Christ? Think about it. Here's Saul of Tarsus, and here's the Apostle Paul. And may I say, both of them have the same knowledge of the Old Testament, and they're the same person. Why over here is there such a staunch resistance and hatred towards Jesus Christ and even a hatred towards Stephen that he wants him put to death? Why? And this is what you have to realize. What you hate in your heart speaks again of what you love. You always love something else. When you love this, it will cause you to hate this. Isn't it true? If I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, with all my soul, with all of my mind, then I hate certain things. I hate evil. I hate my wicked heart. I hate that direction. If I love my wife, Sheila, then anything that's detrimental to her welfare, I hate. I despise. Right? We realize that. And what does Saul love? He loves his position. He loves his power. He loves that self-righteousness that happens to be in him. Right? And that's going to cause him to do what? It's going to cause him to hate things that are against his self-righteousness, against his position, against his prestige, against his Jewishness. You know, and, 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 and uh, even uh, Jesus said this in John chapter 3 and verse number 19. And listen to what he says. And this is judgment. And listen to what he says next. That light has come into the world. The greatest light, the greatest beam of light that said God is real and this is who he is. The word in human flesh came and dwelt among us. It was the brightest light, the most clearest light, the most evident light that ever was. You would think that people in throngs, you know, if our problems are external, people in throngs would be coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's the problem? And people, look at the next word, loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you see that? The problem's not external. The problem of why we do evil, why we lust for the things that happen to begin around us. So when you think of all of this, and you look at the nation of Israel turning away from following Moses, which is really turning away from God, they long for Egypt. They long for those good things. Maybe not the slavery, maybe not the toil and sweat, but they long for something to have and be there. And isn't that evident? When our lives get tough, when we go through trials, we start thinking, you know, some sort of escapism that happens to begin out there. But here's the thing. We know that God is absolutely sovereign over all of our trials. So here's the question. Why would God send us through those trials? You know, why would God be, because I'm trying to come up with an explanation out here. What does God want me to see? And we've already read this scripture. But listen to what he says. They have this terror of God, right? They don't want anything to do with them. And this is what Moses says in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 20. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. In other words, don't have this dread of God. For God has come to do what? To test you. 
Now think of what a test is. A test is to reveal something, isn't it? And this is what it's to, what, what, what it's to produce. That the fear of him, in other words, this reverential awe of him may be before you. And here it is. That you may not sin. So think about it. God will send us through things that we would never choose to go through in our life. He'd put testings in our life that we'd never choose to have in our life to reveal something that happened to be in our heart that I would not be able to see unless I went through that test. That's how much God loves us. You know, it would be never, I would think of a patient guy, you know, if everybody always did my will. Right? If the sun was always shining, everything was great. I, I would think I'm the most patient, loving person that I know ever. But here, here's somebody, and they come and sin against me. Here's somebody that goes against my will. And what's it show? It shows my heart. And what's the ultimate purpose of showing my heart? Here it is, that I might recognize who God is. I might recognize his great forgiveness that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, that I might be, get this now, that I might be transformed. Isn't it true? I can remember years ago, in fact, he was one of my professors when I was at um, university. Jim Berg wrote a book called Changed Into His Image. And he has an illustration in that uh, book that's so evident. You know, it's, it's a teabag illustration. And he takes, again, a, a cup of hot water. And he, and he says, if you place the teabag in the cup of hot water, you know, and all of a sudden the water changes color, he asks, asks this this um, a question, where does that tea flavor come from? Where does the change in the water come from? You know, and the most evident answer a lot of people will give is because, because of the hot water, because it's not, not because of the hot water. The hot water is just a circumstance to draw what was already in the tea bag out, right? And then we see what it is. We can taste what it is. Why? Because we didn't know what was in the tea bag until it's placed in the hot water. God places us in the trials of our life, to draw out in our heart what was already there, that we may change. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares for us. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, this Scripture becomes a diagnostic tool that we might see what is evident in our life. And why is it so important to see in our heart? It's so important to see in our heart because there's always an outcome, right? Right? And look at verse number 39 again, and let's, let's just read it again and think about this. He says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So think of what is being communicated here, because he's trying, Stephen's trying to get them to see something. And here's the question Why is Stephen on trial? Why do they want to kill? And why will they take Stephen and throw him out of Jerusalem? pick up stones and pelt them with those stones. Why will they do that? And the reason why they would do that, and we've already seen it, is because of what is in the human heart. They want something other than Jesus Christ, right? So here's the question. Why do they reject Moses? Why do they reject the God of Moses? And, he, and we realize what's in the human heart, right? So the last part of your verse gives a reason and the first part of the verse, which says this, our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside, tells us the external action that comes because of what is going on in the human heart. Do, do you see both halves there? Right, right, both halves. Here it is. This comes first. My heart is interacting. My heart is wanting. My heart is desiring. 
And why is that so important? That is so important because I can trace back the cause, the root cause of any behavior that happens to be in my life. Any behavior, right? Let me give you an example. Fictional because it could never happen. And this is it. I have a tiff with my wife. Never could happen, right? And uh, three quarters of you were honest and laughed. Yeah, yeah. Could never happen. Here she comes and she is frustrated and she says something mean and nasty and sinful to me. Now, here's the question. I respond. And I respond in light kindness. I was hurt. So I say something hurtful back. Now, here's the question. Why did I say something hurtful back? Right? Let me give you a clue to the answer. Think of the tea bag. Why did I say something hurtful back? Right? Because here's the thing. We want to say this because she said and she's not understanding and she's not loving or whatever it happens to be. We want to give some sort of external reason of why I sinned. And we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. The only answer, if it was external, then this is the only answer. This is the only way to reply. But I could have replied in patience. I could have replied and listened to her gripe. I could have replied again with, with kind words. I could have again decided to understand that there is a struggle going on in my wife's heart and listen to her instead of having that sinful response. What's the problem? The problem, and we could come up with pride, we could come up with arrogance, we could come up with the whole idea, I want to be king of my whole fortress. We can come up with all, all sorts of different reasons, but let me, let me just break it down to the core of it. I love self more than I love God and love doing his will. I love self more than I love my wife. That's the core of it, isn't it? And what does it do? I get the action and I come back right here. The reason why I went here is because of something going on in my wicked heart that I want and has come to idolatrous proportions in my life. You know, even Jesus says it's because the Jews, you know, back in the time of Jesus, they thought the greatest problem all the time was outside of themselves. You know, that brought uncleanness in them. The problem's outside, right? Right here it is with my wife. Here it is with Israel. Moses is too long. It brings uncleanness into me. You know, and as he talked about the ceremonial washing of hands, it wasn't hygienic. It was ceremonial. If we don't do this before eating, we're going to be defiled before God. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. And he said to them, then, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. The problem here that Jesus is saying is not external. It's not food. It's not the delay of Moses. It's not what my wife said. It's not any of that, is it? So what's the problem? The problem is what Jesus said next. Right in that passage of scripture, he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then he explains it. Listen to what he says. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Listen to what he says. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, 
slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things, here it is, come from within. And they defile a person. Do you see that? That's where defilement comes. Defilement's not on the outside. Those are just the circumstances that draw out what's already been in my heart all along. Uh, uh, James says the same thing in James chapter 4. He asks this question. Think of me and my wife. Think of me and my wife. And here's the question. What causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? It's her. It's him. Right? And what does he say next? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? Right? He says, you desire and do not have. So this is what you do. I want something. I want something. I murder somebody with my words. I murder somebody again in my heart the way I think of them. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's what's going on. You do not have, why? Because you do not ask. We're not praying, we're not trusting God, but even when we pray, this is how we ask. You ask and do not receive, why? Because you ask for wrongly to spend it on your own passions. I just want her to love me the way I want her to love me. I just want peace and quiet. Lord, give me peace and quiet. It's not about God. It's not about loving my spouse. It is about me. Right? Right? It's about my own foolish heart. Now, think about it. Because you say, okay, okay, you're going overboard. Why is this so important? And let me tell you why it's so important for a couple of reasons. One reason is, if my greatest problem is outside of me, then there's no need for Jesus Christ. There's no need for his forgiveness, and there's no need for his grace. There's no need, again, for what he provides to me. Think about it. Think about it. It's the reason why I sin is outside of myself. There's the reason why, again, I do these things. If the reason why I get angry, if the reason why I flirt with the opposite sex outside of marriage in a sinful way, if those are the things that I do and the problem is outside of myself, why would I ever need Christ's forgiveness? Because the problem's not me. The problem's out here. You know, the problem is around me. Think about Paul again, right? Here's Paul, and he's so angry at Christ, so frustrated with people who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ because he loves his self-righteousness. Now, if he continues on that vein, guess what he never does? He never trusts in Christ. He never writes things such as he wrote again in Philippians, these words, indeed, I count everything as lost, speaking of his old life, speaking of his old reputation, speaking of his old stature. Uh, I, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing, listen to what he says, worth, right? This one that I hated, I adore now, worth of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for this, his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And listen, listen, he's not saying, oh, poor me, but look, listen to what he says, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, to know that we're responsible for the things that we have done in our life, to know that I have chosen to do these sinful things, tells me beyond a shadow of a doubt, I need Christ. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're blaming everything and everyone and all the circumstances that happen to be in of life. Why you sin on the outside of yourself? Maybe you're saying, I don't need Christ. I just need everyone else to change. Let me ask you to do this. Trace it back. Start with your behavior and trace it back. And see beyond a shadow of a doubt your need of Christ, your need of a Lord, 
your need of a savior, your need of, your need of forgiveness. Trace it back. See it. Because Paul goes on and writes this in Philippians. He says, right after that passage, he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness. This is a promise. This is where forgiveness is found. And not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, this law giving that he wanted, he craved, he desired so much, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's now time to trust in him. It's now time to come to him. But there is a second reason why this is so important. And the second reason why it's so important that I see my heart, that I see my foolish heart, that I see my sin and am responsible for my sin is because of sanctification. It's because, again, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we truly want to be changed from one degree of glory to another. And unless, remember what we said? You know, proper diagnosis always comes before the cure. And may I say this? Change never takes place in our life unless I see that there is a need of change. If I'm just a victim, I ain't going to change. And it's incredible. Yeah, I believe the word of God. I believe the word of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it's sufficient for life and godliness. But I have a, a disorder. You know, um, many of your children have disorders. They're called messy room disorders. You know, and this is what I'm going to say. Mom, Dad, who I am, you know, I'd love to clean my room, but, but I have a disorder. Yeah, 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 I know you told me. Right? We have a disorder for everything. You know, I, I just have a short fuse. That's who I am. It's not sin. It's just the way I'm made. I'm either going to have to have some drugs to control it or this, or you're just going to have to live with me. Oh, you know, I've got a, a great libido that happens to be in, inside of me. I have this sexual desire that wells up in me, and I just can't control it. You know, and you're just going to have to live with me and accept it or just discard me. That's just who I am. And we make up excuse after excuse after excuse, not tracing it back to where God says my problem is. Either that or we're blaming other people. You know, that's our favorite target. I did what I did, right? Right? Not because, again, of who I am. I did what I did because of you. Think about it. This is true of secular counseling. It's also uh, true of of, uh, biblical counseling. We realize biblical counseling brings in the word of God, brings in the God of the word, and it's so important. But the vast majority of marriages go through rough patches, right? They go through struggles that happen to begin in your life. And if you happen to be in a marriage and you're sitting next to your spouse, you don't want to go like this, but you're going like this on the inside. You realize that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Marriage is tough. It's a sinner married to a sinner, isn't it? It's really, really tough. And I can remember Paul David Tripp. I, I, uh, I'm not sure if I read it in a book or I heard, I, uh, heard it, again, him uh, teaching this, but he was sitting at 10th Presbyterian Church up on the pulpit getting ready to preach. And he looked down, and it's a big church. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce used to be pastor there. It's a huge church that happens to be getting right there. And he looked down, and he realized this truth. He realized that there is more unhappy Christian marriages than happy Christian marriages. 
that the vast majority of people, they know they shouldn't get divorced, they know they have to live together, they know all this, but most Christian marriages, think about this, aren't happy. People are dissatisfied. So think about it. You come to the end of yourself, and you come out for counseling, and why do you come out for counseling? Because I believe beyond a shadow of doubt, my, if you can change my spouse, if you can change my husband, if you can change my wife, because they're really the problem. Well, why do people come out? I'm not the problem. Yeah, 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 I know I said those things, yeah, yeah, but let me tell you the real problem. And, and we're not convinced. We're not convinced. This is why Jesus Christ has so, so little effect. I, I, can, I, I can remember reading this, but I can remember hearing this on the, on the phone. There was a woman on the phone one day, and she wasn't from this church, but she was seeking biblical counseling, and she was telling me about how difficult her marriage was, how awful it was. You know, and I tried to share the gospel. I tried to share the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and she interrupted me, and this is what she said. I don't want to hear about Christ. That's not what I need. I need a husband who loves me. I'm out of business. All I got is the gospel. All I got is this life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. And let me ask you, what is the greatest problem in your life? Because you're either saying Jesus Christ or you're either saying something else. You know, and, and, if it's, and if I need Jesus and the problem is my own personal sin, then in that passage, you, you, you know, think about it, think about it. That passage that we read earlier in James chapter 4 and verses, verses 1 and 2 that says uh, the reason why we quarrel, the reason why we fight is because our members and, and ourselves also gives the answer. In James chapter 4 and verse number 8, he says this, draw near to God. In other words, trust him, and he will draw near to you. And listen to the repentance. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep over your sin before a holy God and others. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That metaphorical example I gave to you but the sinful words that I said to my wife because she said sinful words to me, the right response to this after I've said those sinful words, please forgive me. I had no right saying the things that I said to you. I chose to love myself more than I chose to love God. I chose to love my kingdom more than I chose to obey him. I chose to love self more than I chose to love you. Please forgive me. And let me tell you, if you do that a number of times, guess what's happening, right? Sinful words, you're not going to do it anymore, right? And why? Because that's repentance and faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So think of it, think, think of it again, right? Write the tea bag. God's going to send us through things that we'd never choose to go through to reveal things that happen to begin in our life so that transformation may go on in our life. So what's the call? The call is to recognize the wrong response. The call is to repentance, to admit, I am really this bad. I'm really this sinful. And then ask this question, right? Because it's not enough to put off the behavior. Here's the other part. What does it look like? to obey Jesus Christ in here? What does it look like to love him? What does it look like to love my children in a godly fashion? What do I know about the word of God 
that tells me beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is how I love. This is how I obey him. This is how I glorify him. And prepare ourselves for the battles that happen to be ahead because God wants us. You know, and the reason why he puts us through these things is because positionally we're perfect before him. We're absolutely holy. We're absolutely sinless before him positionally. He wants us to be that practically. He wants, again, and will send us through things that we would not choose to go through and we do not want to go through, not as a punishment, not because he's angry, not because he's frustrated with us, but because he loves us. And he wants what's highest in us. Do you know what's highest in us? Do you know? Remember the two great commandments? Wait, here, here they are. And he said to them, this is in uh, Matthew chapter 22, you should love the Lord your God with what? With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor, other words, your spouse, your children, people at work, people in the church. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, listen to what he says, all of the law and prophets. God wants our hearts. You know, are you refusing? Refusing what you see in your heart through the circumstances that happen to be in life. Are you refusing that change? God wants what is highest, what is noblest. This great loving God will bring those things in his life. Praise God for his goodness. Why would we ever refuse the love of God, the preciousness of his grace in each one of our lives? Let's seek to be transformed and truly admit the things that we see in our life and turn again to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing passage. What a convicting passage. Because, Lord, we realize that during this day and age, during this disposition, we still have those hard struggles. Lord, even as John Calvin had once said, our heart is a factory of idols. And God, all the things that happen to be of creation, all the things that we want and we crave for self, Lord, so easily become those idols that happen to begin in our life. But God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, even as we look at this grace in Egypt, Lord, even something as simple as the delay of Moses from coming down off that mountain. Lord, when we look at that, we realize there's purpose. There's intent. And it's to show us what we would never see unless we went through those trials. Lord, that we might fear you, that we might trust in you, that we might reverence you, and that ultimately, Lord, we would be transformed, that we might not sin against you. Lord, we know this is an ongoing battle. We know, Lord, so often we fight on the wrong battlefront. We just ask that we'd be experts, Lord, not at diagnosing other people's hearts, but experts at diagnosing our own heart for your glory. We thank you so much. Just be with us now as we go to the table. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brother. Thank you, Pastor. We'll uh, take our hymnals as we prepare to celebrate the table.